PodRocket is sponsored by LogRocket, a front-end monitoring and product analytics solution. Don't know what that is? Go to LogRockets.com. Thanks. Hi, I'm Brian. Um, I'm hosting this podcast. You've probably heard me before. With me is Lori Barth. Hi, Lori. Hi, everyone. Should I introduce myself? Yeah, you might as well. I don't, I mean, I know who you are. <laughs> okay, cool. Um, so I'm Lori. I am a senior software engineer at Netflix. I am also a content creator. So I'm an egghead instructor. I do a lot of technical blogging. I occasionally appear on podcasts and I'm on Twitter a lot. If you follow me there, you'll probably see pics of my dog, pictures of the Lego sets that I've built and a lot of random subtweeting based on whatever random thing is happening in my day. <laughs> I can confirm because, you know, we're on Zoom. I can see the Lego sets uh, in the <laughs> background. So that's, they, they do exist. I don't know if she built them. I assume she did. I did. So we actually have uh, a bunch of stuff to talk about today. I don't know how much we'll get to. We'll start with, uh, I think, probably the, I guess, the philosophical topic. And it's the, the middle end what is a middle-end developer? Because you could you consider yourself to be a middle-end developer, yes? In a bit of a tongue-in-cheek way, yes, but I do. Okay, so I'm curious about two things. One, what you would consider a middle-end developer, and then why is it tongue-in-cheek? Okay, so it's tongue-in-cheek a little bit because one, the middle doesn't have an end. So like, it doesn't really make sense, oh, yeah. Yeah, <laughs> but I I... also because, you know, theoretically I could call myself full stack like most people do, but I don't really think that captures it um, because it's, it's more constrained than full stack. I used to be full stack. There was a time in my career that I would touch databases and DevOps and all of these other things at sort of a shallow level, but I've gotten more in depth in certain areas. And that's sort of what constructs my middle end, um, ideology. Funny enough, I thought I made up this term and I think maybe I made up the word, but a bunch of my friends have been like, oh yeah, that's what I am. Oh yeah, that's what I am. And my colleague made me put it on an internal document once. He was like, no, put it, please, please validate my existence. So middle end is sort of the back end of front end and the front end of back end, which is really confusing. But what does that mean? That means the tooling and sort of pipeline workflow around front end is an area that I have a particular expertise in. So that means in JavaScript land, Babel and ESLint and Webpack and CI and all of those things and compilers and blah, 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 as well as, you know, the JavaScript end. Can I make the CSS and, you know, make the pages work? Yes. Is that my area of expertise? Not really. And then on the backend side, it's a lot of creation of APIs. It's CLI work. It's all of these things that like, they're not the database and they're not working with like pooling threads and that sort of thing. They're a little bit more on the surface, but they require extensive knowledge and lots of consideration of developer experience and user experience and all of these things. And so when you combine those two pieces, they make this really deep and meaty middle of the stack that doesn't necessarily um, focus on the extremes of either end. So that is what I describe as middle end development. And that is what I think is sort of my area of um, knowledge and focus. So one thing that I've heard uh, 
lately. So I actually have this conversation a lot, uh, either on this podcast with Kaylin in the past or just kind of for work. Cause I do think it's kind of interesting, but I've heard it described that the middle end is basically the interface. I'm wondering if that's something that makes sense to you or not really. It does. Pieces of it are, but I don't know that that encompasses everything. So it, the the interface that developers interact with, that's absolutely true. It's, you know, how are they interfacing with the build pipeline and the developer workflow for making the front end? How are they interfacing with the API, which is where they grab their data? All of that is true. But I will, I, I think it encompasses a little bit more than that because it can extend to some user interactivity and not just developer interactivity, but it depends a little bit like what you're building. How so? So if you are working on like, I'll use the examples of what my jobs have been. So when I was working on the Gatsby framework, most of the things that I built were developer facing, right? Because it's a tool to build a website. So there wasn't really any end user involved. The project that I'm working on now, I'm creating a bunch of things for our contributors to hook into and work with, but there's also a level of tooling and other things I'm creating that are going to be for the users of the platform, like the end users of the platform. And it's just about who the customers are and where the different hooks are for them to interact with the project. What does that mean for hiring or at least building a team? You know, like if you're obvious, I mean, I would assume uh, Netflix, for example, has a lot of engineers, right? So somebody's thinking about, all right, so we need front end, front end engineers, middle end, like what's the... Yeah. So interestingly, my technical title is UI engineer at Netflix. I don't think anyone really cares what it is. Um, (laughs) I just, that's what I technically applied for. Um, and they ended up hiring two people when they were interviewing for one. So they hired me and they hired my colleague. Um, and they hired us because we have very complementary skill sets. So technically they were looking for a front end engineer. And what they ended up with was me, who's sort of like the back end of the front end and a little bit of the back end itself and all of this tooling stuff. And her, who's like a CSS design system expert, who's not a designer, but a developer. And Every team is about, you know, piecing together different individuals, right? And I think most people would consider middle-end developers to fall into the front-end spectrum more than the back-end spectrum. I don't know that I'm, I agree with that. Um, But what you'll find is on any team, even if you had full-stack developers, even if you had back-end developers, even if you have front-end developers, like all of those are way too big as terms for people to be experts in all of them. And so some people might consider me like a tooling developer and they would say a team was looking for a tooling developer. But at the same time, there's an expectation and my expectation of myself is like, I fit the needs of the project. I've done weird, weird, random things over the course of my career. So like this week I'm coding Java backends, which I haven't done in six years, but that's what's needed. Yeah, (laughs) Um, that sounds fun. (laughs) <laughs> it worked. Uh, I, I had a very exciting tweet where I was like, I coded Java and it works. <laughs> Interesting. So the, the one, the other thing I hear is like, so, okay. If we assume that JavaScript is essential to being uh, a front end developer today, which I assume it is. Um, there are Python front ends. See, 
I knew that if I paused, I was like, I bet that <laughs> there are, there are other types of front end for sure. There's like WebAssembly and other things, which I think is like, honestly, I haven't dove, dove into it, but I think it's slightly different though. There's JavaScript component. Yeah. Knowing JavaScript is helpful. It is not the only option if you're going to write front ends. Yeah. And is it, are there circumstances where you, not you personally, but where one could be considered, you know, just, and I'm using air quotes, like a designer, like if you're just doing, if that's, and I don't mean that like you'd be just be like a designer and that's your title, but I guess it would be if you wanted to be a developer and someone considered you a designer, that would be maybe not so great. I think it entirely depends. So the first job I ever had, we had explicit designers and I blame this on why I'm not very good at CSS. Um, we had explicit designers and I wrote all of the backend code and I wrote all of the angular JavaScript code and I created the Dom elements and then someone else took my code and added styles to it. I'm not even kidding. These are the designers. They created the mockups and then they did all of the CSS implementation. And so that's not a designer. Like that's a developer. That's very impressive. I didn't know how to do any of that. And so I think that's a sort of unique situation. I haven't heard of a lot of companies since that have that model. Um, I think more common is that you have a designer who's, you know, playing around in Figma files and making SVGs and illustrations and all of those things. It is very rare that I have found a designer in my career who can't also play in the code space. Like they just don't enjoy it, but they can implement stuff if there's like a crunch and something needs to happen. They can tweak something if it doesn't match the mock and they don't think it looks particularly good. That being said, there are plenty of people who want to be designers and are getting pigeonholed as developers who want to be developers and aren't getting pigeonholed as designers. There's a whole conversation about like how you break into design because as entry level, they're like, you need to have a portfolio of 10 different projects and all of those things. So I think everyone is individual. And part of the reason I use the middle end terminology, to be honest, is I don't think we have a lot of nuanced specialties. I don't think we have a, a very good vocabulary for talking about the different skill sets that people have, because let me tell you, one front end developer almost never has the same skill set as another front end developer. How could they? There's so much stuff to know. There's so much. And I mean, the same is true of back end, right? There are back end people who are SREs. There are back end people who are like purely DevOps pipeline. There's back end people who are security people. Like we, these buckets just don't really make a lot of sense anymore. And We've done a lot to improve them, but the backend and front-end labels have persisted and we need to get more granular, especially when we're trying to figure out what our teams need and what we're hiring for. So that makes me, it makes me think more about kind of the, what the future of, of engineering teams looks like. And I know, I mean, I understand that maybe not everyone cares all that much about titles, but it feels like we're either all kind of moving. I say we like I'm a developer, I'm not. Uh, like if we're moving to one just kind of homogenous title, even though it's kind of impossible to be that way, or is everyone hyper-specialized? I mean, we have generalists and we have specialists. They both exist. The title thing is complicated because even if we got into a universe in which all of the specialists were properly titled across companies, they wouldn't be the same. I mean, it's the same way that like leveling is different across companies. So people don't know this, but Netflix only has one title senior software engineer. There's nothing above that. There's no <laughs> like nuanced title above that. So I came from being a staff level two engineer at Gatsby and I am now a senior software engineer, which is very confusing 
to people who like work at Microsoft or Google or Facebook or Stripe or, you know, any of those companies. Cause they're like, senior means like four years of experience and it's above software engineer level two. And then there's staff one and then there's staff two and then there's senior staff and then there's principal. And I was like, no, not here. Like staff principal is senior and it's, it's confusing. And so I, I suspect the same would be true where if you said, I'm a tooling engineer at one company, that would mean you work exclusively on the CLI experience at another company. That would mean you work exclusively on the front end CI experience. And at the last company, that would mean that you're making like developer facing API component libraries. And it would just never, it would never make sense because we're terrible at naming things appropriately, everything gets overloaded. And then what you think is a one-to-one mapping is not. I don't want to get you in trouble, but, but do you know why? Like why, why is there just the one title? Like, Why is there the one title at Netflix? Yeah. Um, so there's an assumption, there's this really public culture doc that you can read. Um, but there's an assumption, I mean, I, there is a software engineer title. There just aren't a lot of them. Um, and, and granted, not everyone is a software engineer, right? Like I'm a UI engineer. There's people who are like DevOps engineers and SREs and other things. But the the senior, there's the no level, which means you don't have a modifier. And there are some of those, but most of the people I found are just senior. There's an assumption at Netflix that everyone is pretty advanced um, in their career and sort of an expert and that you can trust them to make decisions and be accountable and doing things in the best interest of the company. And all of that is based on the idea that everyone you're talking to has pretty deep knowledge in the area they've been hired to work in. And so at that point, it's like a matter of degrees and compensation is not tied to promotions or titling. So it, it, I think it's just like not necessary distinguishing between different people. Honestly, the more distinguishing factor is like, tenure. And that has little to do with how expert someone is. And it's more, how much context do you have about the five other teams this might touch? Um, Which depending on the size of your company is probably like a very helpful piece of the puzzle compared to, oh, hi, you were like distinguished engineer at Microsoft for 10 years. And now you work at Netflix. Like, I'm sure you're super experienced, but you just got, you know, put in the deep end and you're not going to be any more knowledgeable on this than I am. Yeah. I don't want to go too far into, you know, organizational dynamics. Although I am interested, not specifically at Netflix, but like pick another company of roughly equal size um, and talented developers. They have a da- they have a name for that, but I'm not going to use it. Um, <laughs> the like, I wonder how they, how those compare. I didn't know they organized there. You know, how many teams are there? Are they organized differently? Are they, I guess that would be helpful if you were, if you were considering moving around or just kind of wanted to map out your career. But I feel like I just opened a door to a huge conversation that there's no possible way we could. Yeah, there's a lot. I would say if you're interested about like, I can't speak for other organizations because I honestly haven't worked at larger organizations since like I worked for the federal government back in the day. Um, But the culture page, which is like available to everyone is really interesting and gives you sort of a general idea. But I think the main thing to know is in other organizations, promotions are how you get raises. They're how you get more responsibility. They're how you get like 
a bunch of sort of career progression stuff. And at Netflix, all of those decisions and all of those conversations are pushed down to teams. So the expectation that everyone is senior is that everyone can contribute to those conversations and make decisions sort of not in a hierarchical manner. Um, And so moving up, like you're not going to increase your responsibility by getting a different title. You're just going to change your job. And so it's not going to be like, I have more ownership. No, you have just as much ownership as you want at any level. And again, like the compensation piece is completely separate. So the typical reasons for titles don't really apply. Now, if you have if you're going to go interview for a principal role at Google and you're coming from a senior Netflix title, you're lucky because everyone knows what Netflix's titling looks like. So no one's going to knock you for it. But in a less known organization, that's absolutely problematic. Yeah. I mean, it's funny, like the the smaller your company is, and I'm thinking about LogRocket, you know, like when we, or when I started, there were less than 10 of us and, uh, Matt, the CEO, was like, well, what do you want your title to be? And I was like, <laughs> I, I don't care. We're at a conference table in a room, so we call me whatever you want. Uh, and then, you know, there are there were uh, more of us, and then we got more kind of title standardization. And I assume that'll stick around for a while. And then, like, is the is the final stage, once you get kind of really big and, and successful, that you go back to, like, well, titles are just kind of no, I think Netflix is sort of an anomaly there. I think in most cases, titling ends up mattering a fair bit. Um, I will say I was a software engineer and then I was a software engineer and then I was a software engineer and like I never modified my title because I was at small organizations and it didn't matter and there were it was very flat and promotions didn't work that way. And so I was just always a software engineer. And then I wasn't, then I was a staff level two engineer. And like seeing my LinkedIn is really confusing because there's no senior title anywhere in there. So when people ask me, they're like, how did you become a senior engineer? And I was like, I worked at a flat company. I just was one. Like, but we never acknowledged it. And then when I went to interview for the next company, I was like, yeah, no, I'm not getting under leveled. This is what I should be in your, you know, spectrum of, of job titles, but it's complicated. And a lot of it has to do with like knowing the market and understanding what those titles correspond to and what they mean. And I was lucky and I had a lot of people I could talk to and sort of like, and there was a spreadsheet that sort of explained what each level was, but all of these things are, it's not easy. This, I mean, I'm rambling, but like, it's, it's complicated. It's nuanced. It affects different people differently. Obviously, like if I walk into a room and I see, say I'm a C- senior software engineer at Netflix, hopefully I'm going to get some, you know, okay, she probably knows what she's talking about. And that's helpful as a woman in technology, but I'm also a white cis woman in technology. So I need some help there, but not nearly as much as other people do, um, where titles are super important because everyone's going to assume they're the secretary, right? Like it's just different people rely on titles for very different reasons. Yeah, no, it's a great point. Like the, you need, you need a certain title um, for progression so that you are fairly compensated either at your current job when you're up for a promotion or kind of when you move on. So that part escaped me as I was thinking about, as I was thinking about the final stage of organizations as they get big and <laughs> in a very abstract and weird, in a weird way. Hey, there you um, go. You should go be a CEO. They do that all the time. <laughs> the me as a CEO would be a horrible idea. I don't know. 
I know the board would like talking to me occasionally. Um, okay. So I will, I do feel like we owe it to the people we asked on Twitter about middle end to answer oh, yeah. their questions. So for everyone listening, um, we weren't really sure if we were going to uh, have enough really to talk about that we hadn't already covered for like, what is a middle end developer? So we solicited the public. I feel like if this were like a, uh, like a late night show, like this would be a, a, a segment where we like ask the audience or whatever. No, we got to go to the street with the microphone. Yeah, that's, <laughs> I would love to do that. I wish. It would be uh, really fun. I'm not going to lie. <laughs> I don't, I don't know where I would find, well, you know what? You do it at a conference, right? Oh yeah. Like, that's, Okay, so I'll just read the questions and then you can respond or not if you feel like these questions are not that exciting. Okay, okay so first one. Honest question. What is a middle-end dev? Doesn't being in the middle exclude it from being an end? Which I think you just answered. Yeah, we joked about that earlier. Um, yeah. yeah, no, it's that's why it's sort of tongue-in-cheek. But I, I think we did sort of cover what it is. And I think if you consider front-end and back-end, where do they meet? And if you were to create like a little circle in the middle, what part of this, the stack would that encompass? That's basically what we're talking about. Yeah. Okay. That's how you know we're doing this live is that I just read the thing in front of me. (laughs) And when I was done, I was like, oh, we just talked about that. Okay. Next one. So I don't know what this term means, but I think I might be one of these, which I middle end developer. What exactly is a middle end developer? Question mark. How would you define it? Am I a middle-end developer? Are they cool and artsy like front-end or science-y like back-end? I don't know. That feels weird to kind of pigeonhole them Oh, that all, makes but... me sad. That yeah. People think, of, that think, people think of front-end as cool and artsy and back-end as science-y. I, don't, I think one of the th- takeaways that everyone should have about programming is it's, far, it's much more creative than people like to think of it, regardless of what area you're in, because you can solve the same problem 20 different ways. And it's about... Um, being creative with your solutions and thinking through like, what is the most elegant way of doing this in a way that's readable, in a way that conforms to best practices, all of these things. How can I make this like more robust and less hacky? And yeah, of course there's science to it. There's math to it, but like math is much closer to music than it is to biology. Um, And I say this as a math major. So it's much closer to languages. It's, It's closer to all of these things. So if you think of programming as sort of like a language, everything is creative and everything is, is fluid. And whether or not you are a middle-end developer, that's entirely up to you. But maybe you can use uh, the definition I've talked about to make the determination for yourself. Yeah. I mean, even at, at, at LogRocket, which again, you know, is a, uh, there are, are, I forget how many there are. There may be a hundred of us now. When I think of our backend uh, devs, like, the problems that they have to solve yeah. <laughs> are like in order for them to do it, they have to be really creative. I mean, they're, they're yeah. some of the most creative people we have. So yeah, I don't know that I would, I would agree with that question. It's calling them. Science. Yeah. And I would also say that there are front end developers who don't do anything related to design and use very little CSS and they are still incredibly creative because figuring out how to trick the bri- browser into being performant, even when you're loading it with 5 million things, that's an exercise <laughs> in creativity every day. <laughs> yeah, for sure. For sure. <laughs> so then we have uh, a couple of other ones. We talked about how to see, now I'm reading ahead, how does the middle end change based on company size and structure? I think we covered that. Uh, oh, this one we didn't cover. How does testing work in the middle end? Interesting. So 
testing in the middle end is is very similar to testing in testing APIs in the back end and and testing sort of end to end in the front end. I would say that there's a lot of integration tests that you would do if you're building something like a CLI, um, but a lot of middle end work, at least on the tooling side, is making sure those tests are running and preventing people from doing things like pushing or like merging with the main branch or um, pushing updates to production where they fail tests. So a lot of that is like taking things that are best practices, whether that's ES lint rules or tests or prettier, any number of other things and making that part of the workflow automation. So yeah, that's a big part of what middle end devs wire up and get working, or at least in my definition of middle end. It can be different for everybody. I don't believe that there is a hard and fast definition of middle, of middle end. So. Well, I just created one, didn't I? Precisely. So, yeah, <laughs> it's, it sounds accurate. Okay. So then we have a bunch of other questions that don't really seem to me like they're middle end specific. Okay. So the first one is, what can staff engineers do to make your experience easier? easier? I suppose that means you specifically. So it's funny. I think this person read middle end as middle career because there are staff level middle end devs. I was one of them. Um, so it's not about level. So there's right for any title or any given person, you have the level that you are and that can be early career, that can be senior, that can be principal, whatever. And then you have your area of focus that can be backend, that can be DevOps, that can be design, whatever. So you can have a principal middle end engineer. Um, it's about, that's more about seniority and depth of knowledge than it is about um, anything else. I will say if you are a staff level engineer and you're like a team lead and you have a middle end developer who isn't at that level of seniority, be super collaborative and communicative about how they can, one, make the job easier of the developers on their team, making sure there's appropriate tooling and that sort of thing. But also make sure that they're really well integrated with anyone who's do, doing user experience interviews or doing design. And so they can have in-depth conversations about like, what should this API look like? What is an intuitive CLI experience for this? Um, all of those pieces, because there's so much of middle-end development that is about really intelligently building those interfaces. Sometimes I just nod my head and then I forget that no one can see me. I agree with that. So that's what I just was doing. Uh, okay. Last one. Um, what learning resources exist to grow? Oh yeah, you're right. So uh, to grow at mid senior level. Yeah. So middle end versus middle level. Um, it very much depends what you're working on um, and who you're working with. I would say some of your best resources are at your job because that's the area that you could potentially want to grow. I always recommend some of the people who are streaming code because I think it's a great way to see how other people debug, especially because there are so many really senior people doing that. Um, reading more blog posts, building more things. I mean, it, it depends entirely on what you want to do. One of my ways of leveling up was to constantly write about what I learned because it made me understand it at a deeper level. And it provided me with this really nice resume of look at all the things I know. Um, but everyone's different. So you just sort of have to find something that you're interested in doing that will help you combine increasing your knowledge with um, making it repetitive and something that you're going to remember. And if you do it in public, 
as much as you can, that's not a bad thing because it helps give credence to the fact that you've leveled up in this way. I would also just add um, the Log Rocket blog. Just frequent it all, all the time. Just yeah, whenever, exactly. whenever it comes up in Google, just be like, "Yeah, this is where I want to. This is where I want to go." <laughs> Honestly, blogs are really critical. Um, and if you find one where the writing style resonates with you, absolutely. You and I, I think, probably talk about you know creating blog posts for devs for a long time. We don't have that time right now, sadly. <laughs> But um, maybe maybe another time. Okay, so this is the not that I wasn't excited about all of the stuff that we just talked about about the middle end, but I saw I am really excited about this topic. So I saw that you tweeted out. Uh, let's see, I'll give a proper date so people can go and find it. On May eleventh, uh, you sent a tweet that was just like, "I don't follow." Oh, I'm sorry. I'll, I'll read it verbatim. There are a lot of really big names in JS that I don't follow. It's not an accident. What do you mean? Isn't that the point of a subtweet that it's vague enough that nobody knows? No, that's why I want to do it. Oh, I mean, yeah, but like what? So for April Fool's Day, um, I made an entire launch page and um, it, like a workflow for signing up for the mailing list for the launch of a book, which had like a cover and a 3D design and all of that. So I, I made this whole April Fool's joke and um, the title of the book was The Art of the Subtle Subtweet. And I had this whole launch page and you can still find it. It's on my website slash book launch, I think is the URL. Um, and and it was joking about all of this. It's like, you know, I'm going to tell you what the source of my subtweets is for like greatest hits, all of these things. Obviously, I didn't do that. So there were a few reasons for me posting that, but um, I think. I think the sort of takeaway from it and what I think is important is one, you don't owe anyone a follow, like myself included. You, you can create your community on a place like Twitter with as much restriction or openness as you want. You don't have to have your DMs open. You can have your account private. You can do whatever you want and no one should make you feel bad about that. Your boundaries are your boundaries and that's super important. Two, I'm a JS developer. I'm, I'm developing other languages, but I'm very well known for being a JavaScript developer, sometimes for a JavaScript developer who's learning Rust. I blog about JavaScript. I work with TC39. I make, you know, video courses about JavaScript. You would think that I would follow, like, the major players in JavaScript. And I follow some of them, but I don't follow all of them. And... Normally, if I don't follow them, it's not because I haven't heard of them and I haven't seen their accounts. So that's why I say it's intentional because, you know, maybe I've seen them and I'm like, no, it's not really my jam. And there's normally a couple of reasons for this. One is a lot of the really big names in JavaScript are talking about and tweeting about and building very specific tools. If those are tools that I'm not particularly interested in or I don't use, it doesn't make much sense to dilute my feed further. So that's one piece of it. The other piece of it is that I have seen, and this is not JavaScript specific, it's just something, there's a lot of JavaScript people on tech Twitter. Some of those people can be super dogmatic and they can come down and say, my tool is the best because, or you should never do this because, and anyone who follows me knows that that's really not my thing. Um, I'm super anti-gatekeeping. I was a consultant for seven years. I know that pretty much everything that has ever been invented was invented to solve a specific problem and it solved that problem well. And just because it doesn't solve your problem well, 
doesn't really give you license to discriminate against its use, especially when half the time these are bleeding edge edge tools and people are like, oh, don't use X. And I was like, X is used on 50,000 legacy systems and those legacy systems aren't going away. Um, and so sometimes I just don't want to deal with that. <laughs> um, and it, it normally finds its way to my feed anyway, if it's a particularly bad take. So yeah, I just, I also, I am all for people who create content. I'm all for self-promotion. I think especially when you're making a living out of content, that's super important. Um, but again, if that's all based around a specific tool that I don't use or particularly have interest in at this point, there's not much relevance in adding it to my feed. So that's sort of the main reason. And obviously, as with any area of technology or any industry, there are certain people who are just toxic and like sort of assholes and I don't want to follow them either. But that's that's less the case. Yeah. I mean, to my great disappointment, that was uh, not really scandalous. Uh and (laughs) fair and well-reasoned so you know um in the interest of fairness i'll i'll and i've said it on on this podcast before to to different people for me you know like i so i curate the log rocket twitter account and then also my own account i follow just because like when i was starting i didn't really you know maybe four years ago i didn't have a ton or really any web dev experience so i was like trying to figure out who the major players are and all that stuff but what became quickly, what was really difficult for me was trying to disentangle who are the ones that are building things and who are the ones that are kind of talking. And that's and what I've come to realize uh, later on is that the, the talking part, like that's their job, <laughs> you know? Um, and so I don't, I used to say that with, you know, more negatively than I currently do. Like now I get it. Oh, okay. Like your job is to do just that, is to be, kind of a cult of personality, right? And and I get it. And then you also get the wrong idea. Like I, you know, we had Swix on here a few weeks ago and he used to drive me crazy. And then then I talked to him, like not in person, but I actually talked to him here and I was like, oh, I like, turns out I like Sean. Go figure. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I, um, I think it's actually really challenging to be someone creating the content um, and be the person who is walking a very fine line between I'm a talker and I'm a creator. So I have at times felt like I am being a talker and I've been a talker for a month because I haven't had time to create. And I think for people who don't create, there should be a little more sympathy for that. Like no one wants the label thought leadership, but at the same time, like it's a lot easier for me to write a 250 character tweet three times a day based on something that I happen to be working on or thinking about than it is for me to sit down and create a video course or uh, write a new blog post or all of those things. And there are going to be stretches of time where I can't do that. And that doesn't mean I want to withdraw from a community that gives me a lot of joy and uh, provides a lot of value in my daily interaction. But yeah, my profile of what I'm putting out into the world is going to shift. And I struggled with that for a long time because I was like, okay, if I'm not producing content, then I'm just another like thought leader in that sucks. But I think having grace for that and sort of recognizing that it's always going to ebb and flow is a good thing. Not everyone needs to be a creator. Um, There's also people who like the tweets that they make are super valuable in and of themselves, which is a weird concept to me because I think of a content creator as, you know, blog posts and videos and courses and all of those things. And a few 
weeks ago, maybe like a month ago, I mentioned, hey, I'm starting a new job. I'm onboarding. I'm not going to be creating as much content. And I meant I'm probably not going to have any egghead videos out. I'm probably not going to be writing any blog posts that didn't end up happening. I had some stuff I needed to write about, but like, I'm not going to be doing this for a little while. And everyone was like, well, we'll miss you, but like Twitter will be here when you come back. And I was like, interesting. There is a huge number of people who expect that when I say content, I mean the tweets that I write, which to me is like the low stakes thing that like is literally just my stream of consciousness throughout the day. Type, 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 send, keep going back to work. So I think for a lot of people, Twitter is content. And when you write, oh, hey, like yesterday or the other day, I was like, um, you can do get status dash dash porcelain, or I think that's what the command was. And like, I just tweeted that out. I was like, hey, I just learned this thing. That is content. That wasn't a full blog post of content, but that was a thing. So it's hard. There's a balance. There's no, there's no like stringent rule, but the line is a lot hazier than I think I ever realized. And, um, yeah, just you follow who you want to follow, but recognize that at any given time, the profile of what they put out into the world can be drastically different depending on what they have going yeah. on. No, I mean, there's, I don't think also, I don't think it's a, a challenge problem circumstance that's, you know, at all unique to either tech Twitter or like, I think it's just kind of the nature of the beast with Twitter in general, which is why it's perhaps not my favorite platform in the world. <laughs> tech Twitter has its moments. Um, villain of the day is one of my least favorite things because the people just need to stop putting terrible takes on Twitter and getting everyone well, up it. in arms because like they sort of deserve it most days. It's not like they didn't really stick their foot in their mouth. I'm just like, okay, really? But tech Twitter has been super important to my career. So in that way, I find it very valuable. Fair enough. And I think that this conversation was very valuable. And I think it's reached its natural end. Yeah. Because I'm not going to ask you any more questions about what you feel, think about Twitter. And we managed to, let's see, we managed to um, figure out what exactly a middle-end developer <laughs> is, was, and will be, mostly. And we talked about the people that you don't follow on purpose without naming any names. So, like, everything worked out. <laughs> um, so, Absolutely. thanks so much for coming on. This is where we typically off. Like, what do you want to plug? Any anybody, anything? Um, what should people go check out? Yeah. So if you want to, obviously I'm on Twitter at Lorian Tech. I have a website where I put, you know, my blogs and podcast appearances and all of that. I have a bunch of courses on Egghead.io. In terms of plugging other people, um, I would say look at the look at the people I do follow. There's a lot of like hidden gems there. Um, and I highly recommend giving all of them a chance because they were chosen intentionally. And if there's someone you don't like, like, let me know. Maybe I made a mistake. Or you're wrong. Then you should follow them. Yeah. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> um, well, thanks so much. I really appreciate it. Thanks so much, Brian. It was awesome to be here. Bye. Hi. Thanks for listening. Um, please remember to like, subscribe, uh, email me if you want, even though none of you do. Go to logrocket.com and, and try it out. It's free to try. Then it costs money, but yeah, we'll see you next time. Thanks. <laughs>